Welcome back to Russian Roulette, a podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, uh, and I'm here in the CSI studio with my co-host, Jeff Mankoff. Happy New Year. So, yes, if you're listening to this, it is the 1st of January. We're recording this a little before. Well, it's the 1st of January or after. Or after. Yes, that's true. You're saying they don't listen to these immediately <laughs> right <laughs> after they, they get their their phones and computers? Well, you know, maybe Madness. you enjoyed it so much you want to re-listen to it a couple perhaps, days later. Perhaps. Or perhaps it's somebody who, you know, only subscribed in March and is going through the back catalog. We're recording this in late December. And um, I'm going to say that... Uh, this is my last uh, Russian roulette as host. Perhaps you'll have me back as a guest uh, at some point or other. But uh, since if it is January and you're listening to this or, or later, I am no longer the host of Russian roulette. I'm uh, over at uh, the International Crisis Group rather than CSIS. And stay tuned. We'll see what, uh, what exciting podcast activities we do, we do from there. But uh, in the meantime, um, Jeff and I decided uh, for this last episode with me as uh, as one of the hosts to talk about this past year. Everything that happened this past year. Well, not everything. Lots of things that happened. This Th- things that happened in this past year that came to our minds as uh, we decided to prepare for this episode. So have a listen. So 2018 was exciting. As are most years, but maybe Only some are lately. more exciting than others. It's been a particularly exciting spate of years. Yeah. Um, well, you know, there's the old uh, purported curse of may you live in interesting times, and I always like to remind people that it is indeed meant as a curse. And we are indeed living in interesting times. I don't know, what, what's, the, uh, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of all the exciting Russia and Eurasia happenings of uh, this past year? Well, since we live in Washington, I think the one that's completely inescapable is the the Mueller investigation and the question of uh, Russian interference in, in American politics. Well, that's just a gift that keeps giving, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's probably going to keep giving in 2019 in various ways, too. Now, of course, we don't know what's ultimately going to come out of that investigation. We don't know what the denouement is going to be. That's ultimately a political decision as much as uh, a legal one or a, a forensic one. But I think it's pretty fair to say that this whole story has really put Russia front and center in discussions around American foreign policy and American politics in a way that it hasn't been in quite a while. Well, in a way, I think Russia never has been. I mean, this is a completely new and different way for Americans to think about Russia. Well, I was, yeah, Russia, yes, the Soviet Union, maybe not so much. But again, I mean, as an adversary, as a problem, uh, yes, that's familiar. As a, perhaps even kind of this narrative that Russia is attacking our democracy, uh, hates our freedom, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that that's certainly in line with the narrative of Soviet times. The notion that it's successful, that it knows us better than we know ourselves, that uh, the nefarious Russians are able to do magical things that uh, nobody has ever been able to do before, that they've uh, they've got their, uh, they've got these capabilities that uh, no one expected them to have, that they are the ones responsible for how American politics works. I mean, I think that doesn't work or doesn't work. But I think that's that's kind of new. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, there is this tendency to sometimes see the Russians as being 50 feet tall. 
um, when most of our problems are, are self-inflicted. I would say though that I think one of the key differences between our current era and, and the Cold War is that you know, at least since the late 1940s, when people were talking about the Soviet Union as a threat to American democracy and institutions, it was a conversation that was constantly happening. You didn't have to remind people that this was out there. And I think what happened is that the Cold War ended and there was this collective forgetting about Russia. And it's only in the last couple of years that that collective forgetting has been replaced by a collective freaking out maybe. Right. But it's also very definitely not the Cold War, right? Because the Cold War was this juxtaposition of two powers. It was a it was a global order uh, and everything the United States did, they did with an eye to Moscow and everything the Russians did, they did with an eye to Washington. And here we have a completely different model where the United States continues to have all of these different interests and all of these- Russia is one of them, Russia's but it's one not of the them, dominant and Russia, factor. Well, and Russia complicates things, but the United States is incapable of looking at other issues through a Russian lens, although Russia- As much argue, as it frustrates Moscow, that that's not the case. Well, because Moscow does continue to look at things through uh, a US lens. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of this too, this political interference is about getting the attention of the West, forcing it to actually look at things through Russia's eyes and take Russian concerns seriously. I think you might still be- uh, imposing more of a narrative than exists, uh, other than the fact that it's always a narrative to some extent. Yeah. But I mean, that's Russian foreign policy. It's Russian foreign policy. I mean, Russian foreign policy is also Syria, where it's continued to be uh, extremely active and exciting. You know, that, that's that been that's been a high point uh, or several high points of this year. Yeah. No, Russia has uh, definitely stepped up its involvement in Syria. And I think contrary to the prognostications of a lot of people in the West that it would be entering into a quagmire like the one that the U.S. got itself into in Iraq – um, has actually had some reasonable successes. No, now, think... whether it can translate those into some kind of long-term um, agreement that's going to allow it to achieve its ends and impose some kind of order in Syria remains to be seen. But it's already handled this, I would argue, better than, than the U.S. has handled most of its interventions in the Middle East in the last couple decades. I would say Russia has been effective in large part because it kept its aims uh, constrained and its actual military activity constrained. Uh, the I think they hoped that they would not be left responsible for the end game, that there would be a way to bring the United States, Europeans, mm -hmm. other pa parties in if to only cleaning to pay up the mess. It. Oh, I think far more than pay for it because- but At a minimum to pay for it. At a minimum, it. but- but what they're getting is none of that, right. and the mess continues. Um, you know, I think one of the, the, the one of the other events of uh, 2018, uh, fairly early in the year, that helped shape the rest of the year was when Putin addressed uh, his parliament on the first of March with a speech that was about two thirds domestic and mm -hmm. one third defense and military. Most uh, of which was remembered for the cool multimedia presentation of missiles flying around and, and hitting things. Things including Florida. Like Mar-a-Lago. Uh, which, so, you know, that, that's, uh, that's why it should be remembered. I, at some point, somebody uh, asked me, given that the speech was focused for the most part on domestic issues, on putting more money into health and education, why uh, does everyone pay so much attention to the military stuff instead? And I said, well, you know, if you look at how the Russian government has promised and how it's fulfilled its promises over the last 25 years or so, it's been promising increases in funding for health and education mm -hmm. all this time. And those really haven't materialized in the way that 
uh, one might have hoped. Whereas while the military spending hasn't you know, always given the armed forces everything they ever dreamed of, it's certainly been uh, far more in line with the promises. So even if it lags behind in terms of time and resourcing, it does uh, it does get done. So it makes sense to pay more attention to yeah. that part of it. Well, and not only that, but the, the domestic spending, the social spending, that's primarily a message that's targeted at a domestic Russian audience. Um, and for the audience here in the United States or in Western Europe, I mean, that's fine. I think especially for those of us who focus on Russia, it's important to understand what the you know likely dynamics of, of Russian budget are going to be. But as far as interests of the United States and Europe go, it's the defense side that's of most uh, concern. Right. So it's uh, and then you know we had this whole lengthy discussion and debate about what it all means and as we always do. Are the Russians threatening us? Are the Russians being defensive? Is this an opening to future arms control negotiations? It's one of these fascinating things about the dialogue between the United States and Russia. I I do and I say this again and again. So I'll say it one more time. We do talk to each other. We do make these efforts to send signals in words that the speaker tends to think are pretty clear. But somehow the audience on the other side is able to have lengthy arguments with completely polar opposite uh, understandings of what what has been said. And I don't well, know how you break out of that. I in, I think in part it's a reflection of a lack of trust, um, that there on both sides is a suspicion that the other doesn't necessarily mean what they say. Um, I think it's partially the f- result of the fact that there are debates within our own country uh, about not only what the nature of the relationship with Russia should be, but just sort of around first principles of American foreign policy uh, and how Russia fits into that, depending where you come down. Um, and, you know, I, I do think that there is a, a conceptual gap between the way that we think about a lot of these issues and the way that, that Russia does. And so almost inevitably what one side says gets filtered through the set of assumptions and practices and linguistic tricks that the other side uses, um, which, of course, you know, is trying to parse those misunderstandings is what you and I do every day. Right. People don't listen to us, except you, lovely listeners, who are listening to us, for <laughs> we which we are grateful. To us. Of course, the response to Putin's um, March speech was also filtered through things that happened in its immediate aftermath, like the uh, poisoning of the Skripals in the UK just a couple of days later. Yeah, well, that's that's been another uh, subject that hasn't gone away. I mean, it's led to accusations of chemical weapons used by Russia in the poisoning, It's uh, which has triggered sanctions. But it's uh, – I think this Kripal poisoning also shows very much the lenses through which Russia is viewed, um, not because there are people who think that the Russians didn't do it, though there are, uh, particularly in Russia, but uh, more because – you either assume that Vladimir Putin personally orchestrated this, that he sat there and said, yes, this man Skripal and also his daughter, uh, let let us poison them. Um, you, you too, you go, you you go to Salisbury. Uh, you look at the you cathedral, at the cathedral. <laughs> 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 while you're at it. Uh, Poison the Skripals. And the you know, alternative explanation, which is that lots of things happen in Russia for lots of reasons, and Vladimir Putin may not have personally directed this. And 
you know, it's a debate in the West. It might even be a debate in Russia. Just what How much lev- operational control does Putin have? Right. And what, uh, at what level do things have to be approved? Right. But this myth that Russia is both um, stunningly competent and able to do all the things and that Vladimir Putin himself is in charge of it, wow, guy's amazing, huh? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, – you know, it it kind of, it def, it defies credulity, right? You can't. It's hard to believe that this this could that people can genuinely think that Vladimir Putin all by himself is running all of this with such supreme competence, such understanding of how everybody will respond, and such a great plan. Yeah, well, right. Except there's the the alternate narrative, which is that the Russians are bumblers and can't do any of these kind of things without screwing it up and getting themselves in a in a pickle because you know and accidentally killing somebody else. Yeah, which it, is you killing, know killing. People who had nothing to do with this, you know, which of causing, course was a result of the poisoning. Yeah. Skripal's lived, but know, a b- what, innocent by- bystander died. Whatever the Russians think of Sergei Skripal, you know, his daughter had nothing to do with his activities, and of course she was targeted as well, or at least affected. But beyond that, right, there's the political ramifications of the poisoning, which is that the UK, a country where Russia has had a lot of influence for a long time, because of financial ties because of emigres because of you know various other things really reacted in a pretty strong way to the poisoning in a way that I think that probably Russia didn't anticipate um, and so you know on the one hand you have the operational side of this which may have been very competent although, you know, the targets of the poisoning survived and somebody who was not targeted died. And the choice to use a poison like that, right. which leads you unquestionably back to Moscow. Yeah, th- this one's very hard to uh, – th- th- there's not a lot of uh, plausible deniability on this one, sort of like the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, also in the UK over a decade ago. There's not a lot of people or entities that would have access to this kind of thing mm-hmm. other than – the Russian government. I'm going to start a new conspiracy theory. I'm going to say the Russians have a cache of poisons in the United Kingdom, which is why that why political assass- assassinations of Russians in the United Kingdom use poisons. You heard it from me first. If you pick it up <laughs> and run with it, I want credit. I don't actually believe it, though. Yeah. Well, I was going to say with uh, Litvinenko, I seem to recall that they found that the airplane that yeah. the, the two people had traveled on had been heavily irradiated. But the fact that you can counter my conspiracy theory should make no difference in its spread through the interwebs <laughs> over the course of days and weeks to come. Yeah. So Russia and disinformation, that's a whole other topic. This will be my lasting legacy. Yeah. American disinformation. Right. Um, and then, you know, after the Skripals, Putin was reelected as president. Right, um, in, a, in a stunner. Uh, yes, this surprised uh, no one. But it is interesting that despite the uh, complete predictability of the results of that presidential election, there was nevertheless discussion of will it mean something different in Russian policy, foreign or domestic. Mm-hmm. A lot of speculation that once he's elected, he will change course on the Russian economy. Uh, yes, on foreign policy, of course, he did not. Right. And, you know, I understand where that kind of speculation comes from. Um, we forget it sometimes, but Russia does have its own domestic political environment. And, you know, as in the U.S. or any other country, pre-election periods are 
sensitive and post-election periods when the new leader has sort of more uh, authority and, and legitimacy or when you might actually see changes happening. Um, but as far as what the indicators would be or what the drivers of that change would be, I, it, it, it's hard to see any of them. I will say, though, that one um, consequence or one issue that's now on the table in a way that, you know, it maybe hadn't been quite as, as prominent before is, well, so what happens now? Because Putin, in theory, has six more years uh, under his current term. He's constitutionally prevented from running again after that. Um, so you I'm, know, I'm what sure happens? solutions can be found to well, this problem. Right. But now this is a now in Russia, Russian political elites have to figure out what those solutions are going to be. Uh, is there change engineered to the constitution to allow Putin to stay on? Do they look for a, another successor as they did with Dmitry Medvedev? Does something else entirely happen? Um, we don't know, but this is now a, a very live subject and something I'm sure we're going to be talking a lot about over the next few years. With our plans for 2019, 2020, 2021 assured. 2022 and probably yeah. 2023. You know, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of increasing sanctions, in the midst of investigations, in the midst of the United Kingdom being very, very angry about the poisoning on its soil, Russia had a stunningly successful World Cup uh, hosting experience. Yeah. Um, and the the Russian team even made it to the semifinals, which uh, I don't think anybody was really expecting. But slews of people from around the world, including Americans and Brits, uh, showed up, had a great had a time. time. Yeah. Um, Moscow looked great. Uh, other Russian cities, uh, which I did not have a chance to visit, other than Veliki Novgorod, which I don't think had any mm -hmm. uh, games played. But, you know, the country as a whole, you know, it looked good and uh, was very welcoming. Yeah. So in the midst of all of these challenges, Russian soft power actually had a, a nice turn. Yeah, as it did with the, the Winter Olympics a couple of years ago. and I think this was better. Than, I mean, the Sochi well, Olympics, they were marred by a lot of critiques on, about infrastructure. None of those mistakes were made this time. The, the, this those, was clean and pretty and so nice. Yeah, I, I think the critiques about infrastructure in Sochi, one – were mostly before the games. And once things actually were up and running, it seemed fine. But Russians remembered that. Russians still yeah, remember Yeah, well, I was going to say, very but the, the, yes, there was a, a real backlash in Russia to the way that the preparations for the Sochi game were undertaken. And, you and know, covered in the West. Yeah. Well, and I know with the World Cup too, right, the, it was the same thing. I mean, Russia's always been able to build the infrastructure for these sorts of things. It just does it with a lot of inefficiency and corruption in the process. And I don't think that was any different this time. Um, but for one reason or another, you know, the coverage was less focused on the on those issues in particular. One other just sort of side note from the, the World Cup, I didn't go to Russia for any of the, of the games, but I was watching uh, the semifinal with Croatia uh, here in Washington. And, you know, it was somewhat striking to me that every single person in the beer garden where I was watching this was cheering for Croatia and was really sort of amped up and hostile to the to the Russians and was cheering when they lost. Uh, and I don't think that's because there's a big Croatian diaspora in Washington. I think it's because it says something about the nature of where the U.S.-Russia relationship is going and how the politics have filtered down to the level of, of, of sport. 
And yet, despite this, uh, Trump and Putin met in Helsinki. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and that, that was quite the show. It, it, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's one way to describe it. Um, I mean, we, we talked about it at the time, right? I mean, yeah. I think everybody was – I remember wa- listening to that press conference on my way to work because I had to do an interview mm-hmm. pretty much on arrival – just periodically stopping and saying, what? What is he saying? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's always been the weird Putin-Trump dynamic that we can spend a lot of time trying to dissect and and maybe psychoanalyze. But this was really one of the wackier moments of all of that, less because of anything that Russia did and more because of of, the American side. No, I think the Russians thought that they would have a normal summit. They proposed, uh, you know, joint statements that could come out of it. Yeah. I I actually think what happened was that the Americans, the American government – wanted very much not to give the Russians a win. So they were refusing to agree to any of these things. And as Mm -hmm. a result, uh, President Donald Trump was left to wing it a little bit on stage. And in many ways, you winged it in a way where, you you know, it almost sounded like he was reading the Russian talking points. Right. So I mean, the result was even worse than, you know, a and the dying joint statement might have been. Yeah. And, you know, this is something you're starting to hear from Russians, which is that, you know, in some ways Trump is anomalous in that he seems to be more favorably disposed to Russia for one reason or another um, than other recent American leaders have been. Um, but that he's a liability in some ways in part because there's so much mistrust uh, around his Russia ties here in the United States and that when he – does or says things like he did in Helsinki, the response in the U.S. is is to create such a backlash that that there's no there's no real gain from it for Russia, and you know they met again um, more recently uh, at the G20 in Argentina, but it you know we, we very briefly quite, very briefly we haven't because they it. weren't going to meet yeah well they were they were going to meet and then they weren't going to meet and then they were going to meet again and yeah so th- there's this whole kind of weird dynamic well, here well that's it, yeah i mean that's because we've had such an exciting fall right uh, you know the fall started with uh, the russians up and upping the ante a bit uh, where historically their vostok exercise the eastern military exercise that happens every couple of years has featured an adversary that Sometimes looked a looks little strange like, like China. China. Yeah. yeah, it's not officially China. I mean, o- o- like often China. it's it has been. I think in one case it was illegal armed groups, um, yeah, non-governmental deta- groups that had a lot of tanks. Right, that had like a million man army and a couple of. But tanks. But this time China was a participant, and the scenario was nasty Western invaders. You know, a, a nasty alliance mm-hmm. of uh, of bad guys. From somewhere else, which you know, t- talk about signals. That was a fairly clear signal of Russian and Chinese cooperation against this ostensible Western adversary. Right, and you know, because it's extremely likely that NATO is going to be, you know, deploying a, a brigade to, I don't know, Mongolia or something, which also participated in the Vostok exercises, incidentally. Because why not? Yeah, well, because when you have Russia and China for neighbors, that's what you do. But yeah, I mean, I think. One of the stories of, of the year, and, and Vostok is is uh, an indicator of it, is the continued uh, closeness of the, of the Sino-Russian relationship. Um, in some ways, this isn't a big story. I mean, these are two countries that 
need to have a good relationship with one another. But in the context of confrontation between both Washington and Moscow and Washington and Beijing, I think it's significant that you have things like Chinese forces participating in Vostok uh, and, you know, signaling greater Sino-Russian cooperation specifically with the idea of uh, pushing back against the U.S. And before we continue with our really exciting fall, um, one thing I forgot about the summer, right, was the pension reform was announced and Russians got angry. Yeah. Enough to come out into the streets. Not enough to overturn governments or anything because they're not, after all, Ukrainian. Right. But uh, people were very unhappy with the raising of the pension age. As, you know, people in most countries are and, and would be under those circumstances. I um, mean, yes, but it also is a very reasonable policy move to yeah. raise the pension age. Right. So, you know, one could argue that it was bad policy to raise it the way it was raised, that it's something even more graduated that over more time could have uh, been um, more palatable. Yeah. Well, and I, I think what's interesting, too, is that the government knew this was going to be unpopular. And in the past, they've been very careful about touching social security and and benefits, right? There was the attempt several years ago to monetize pension benefits. And you had, you know, pensioners coming out on the streets protesting. And in contrast to when you have uh, the young middle class types coming out to protest the the, what they call office plankton, um, it's a little bit different when you have pensioners who are in many ways the the bulwark of the the Russian political system coming out. But young people were also coming out to protest. I mean, this was the whole, people are afraid they won't live to see their pensions, which actually isn't True, right? Because overall, no, what you're seeing, be true of some no, well, it's, yes, but overall, what you're, you've seen tremendous improvement in Russian healthcare. You've seen uh, you've seen an improvement in life expectancy. At this point, people who die young, you know, all sorts of things can happen to make somebody die young, but a lot of it is lifestyle choices, mm-hmm. and a lot of that is generational. You have a younger generation that isn't drinking or smoking as much, so you know, your average thirty year old is far, you know is far more likely to see their pension than right. your average 60. Your right. But, you know, still, if you're 60, I can understand why you're upset about this. But what's interesting to me is that knowing full well that there was going to be this kind of a response, the government did it anyway. Um, they decided this was important enough, the fiscal implications were important enough that they were willing to take the hit to do it. I mean, Russia domestically has had a tough, a tough year. Uh, pension protests aside... The economy continues to stagnate, and some of that sanctions, and some of that's other things. There was a horrible fire in a shopping mall mm-hmm. in Siberia in April, which killed a lot of people, killed a lot of children. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it was a result of shoddy uh, construction secu- security and, practices. Just yeah. r- people inadequate sprinklers, doors were. Bl- I mean, yeah. It's... I mean, this is the sort of thing that could happen anywhere, but it happened in Russia. Mm-hmm. And it speaks to Russians, much like it would just about anywhere else, of, you know, people feel there's a general lack of interest in their health and yeah. livelihood, which also fits together with the, with the pension protests. Right. And then, you know, more recently, there was a school shooting mm-hmm. in Crimea, which we can call, is that Russia? Is that Ukraine? It depends, <laughs> on, the, depends on your politics. But it was certainly the Russian government that had to be the one responding since they've occupied the, the peninsula. Right. And, you know, it followed very much the model of school shootings uh, in the United States. Uh, yeah, one of our more unfortunate exports, I suppose. Right. That, a, you know, a college kid in Crimea uh, who, you know, according to what I've seen, 
he had been uh, reading about American school shootings. That that was what inspired him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he bought bought his gun legally uh, in a hunting shop. Uh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think it is an American export that uh, is going to continue to continue to spread, and that's terrifying and very depressing. Yeah. Now, of course, we've been talking a lot about Russia, but there's been interesting stuff happening in other parts of the former Soviet Union this year as well. Um, oh, Armenia, you know. Yeah. Ar- Armenia had elections that led to protests and a change in government. I mean, the elections would have led to very little change. The elections yeah. were going to lead to a castling move where... Uh, the president was going to become the prime minister. Exactly. And, and the powers were going to shift over to yeah. the prime minister. And it turns out the Armenians wanted none of that. Right. I mean, the Russians didn't particularly want that either in 2011. But the difference is that in Armenia, they actually were able to force a change. And one of the things I find more, most fascinating about that is that Armenia's new leadership... Um, put into power in large part because, you know, entirely because of popular protests, has taken pains to reassure Russia that this does not mean a change in Armenia's foreign policy, that yeah. the, Armenia's desire for democracy and a voice in their government is not Armenia's desire for uh, divorce from the Russians. Yeah. And I would say that Armenia is in a difficult position because even if that's what it wanted, it, it doesn't really have that option just because it depends on Russia for its security, for a bunch of its trade. Um, it has a significant Russian military presence. So you know, even if this were something that the protesters wanted, it would be very difficult for them to get. What I would say is also interesting though is that Russia seems to have taken that message more or less on board. So they didn't intervene in Armenia to try and prevent this from happening, right? They have been at least keeping an open mind as far as working with the new government of, uh, of Nikol Pashinyan. Uh, so, you know, this has some things in common with the so-called colored revolutions that we saw in places like Ukraine. But I think both the, the new Armenian leadership and Russia are handling it in a, in a much different way. Absolutely. No, I think that's really important. And speaking of uh, regime change, right, we Uzbekistan, which changed leadership before the, before 2018, but we could, we're continuing to see the effects of it mm-hmm. and the um, implications of it for Central Asia of yeah. a more open, the Uzbek Spring, less re- less repressive Uzbekistan. Right, there was a the first high level meeting of Central Asian leaders in uh, ten years uh, in March. Uh, you know, they agreed to host an annual summit. Uh, it's uh, yeah. Tajikistan finally completed the Rogun Dam, which the previous government in Uzbekistan had threatened to bomb. Uh, so that didn't happen, and that's uh, a sign of progress as well. Um, you know, this is a, a part of the world where we're not used to much in the way of good news. But I think having a, a more open, engaged Uzbekistan at the center of a more open and engaged Central Asia is really one of the of the more positive things we've seen from the region in a while. And Georgia, once again, had a contested, uh, peaceful uh, change of uh, change of leadership, yeah. um, not entirely unmarred by controversy, but mm-hmm. calm, normal. Yeah. And elected the first uh, female leader in the post-Soviet region, which is significant. And we're going to see how she does. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I continue to be impressed by Georgia. It's... They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, um, <laughs> but uh, post-2008 conflict, Georgia has, I think, done 
a remarkable job in the region of staying rational and making the most of what it's got. Yeah, and Misha Saakashvili is a fascinating character, but he was one who overreached. But I, I do think that a lot of the change that we've seen in Georgia has been the result of his success in just kind of clearing the decks in, you know, mm. being... You don't think a lot of what we've seen in Georgia is a result of getting rid of Saakashvili? Well, I think it was both, right? I think the fact that he was able to clear away a lot of the inherited baggage that Georgia and the other post-Soviet states inherited from the Soviet Union created the possibility for these kind of For him to be cleared away as well. Yeah, well, well, once he was out of the picture, right? Well, it turned out he was some of the baggage. I mean, I think... Well, he was baggage of of some sort. Well, I think there's something fairly post-Soviet about him. Okay, let's turn to the breadbasket in the room, uh, Ukraine, which we have not... Yeah, uh, also had a... Uh, you, eventful year. It's well, it's had a really eventful fall, right? Yeah, well. <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know over the course of most of the year, the conflict um, in the east continued to simmer. The Russians continued to support uh, and or be the separatists. Uh, people continued to die. The Americans decided to send Ukraine anti-tank weapons, but uh, to keep it as far away from the east as possible to ensure that they would not come in contact with any Russian tanks. Right. Um, But it really – it's really just gotten exciting in the last few weeks, right? Yeah. Well, starting with the uh, decision of the ecumenical patriarchy in Constantinople, as they still refer to it in the – in the Orthodox Church to grant uh, autocephaly to the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Uh, this has been um, sort of speaking of post-Soviet baggage, right? This has been a, a big issue hanging over Russo-Ukrainian relations for the last really thirty years. Um, when Ukraine became independent, uh, shortly thereafter, it set up its own uh, Orthodox Church, which was not canonically recognized anywhere else in the Orthodox world. The official church was still subordinate to the Moscow Patriarchate, uh, which for many Ukrainians signified that on the religious level and on the cultural and historical level, that meant that the outside world was still looking at Ukraine through the prism of its relationship with Russia. Um, And for the last close to 30 years, Ukrainian governments, well, most of them, and of course the the clergy of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church in Kiev have been pressing to be given uh, their own sort of independent autocephalous church. And finally, uh, in October, that was granted over significant Russian opposition. And we're going to see where this goes. I mean, it's it's still an interesting question in Ukraine now as they're transferring all of the churches to to the new regime, as it were. Yeah, no, it raises a bunch of important questions. One is about property. Um, the Now that the Kiev Patriarchate has sort of uh, international standing, it seems to be accelerating its push to take over church property in Ukraine. Um, and that's a financial issue. It's also uh, an issue about... Um, it's a legitimacy, issue. yeah. I mean, it, there are monasteries and churches and, and various other. And of course, it's an issue of faith. Yeah, although I mean, this is really doctrinally, there really isn't that much different. There really isn't any difference. It, it, it's an identity question, uh, which doesn't make it any less explosive. 
Um, and it also has implications for the wider Orthodox world because the ecumenical patriarch is not like the Pope. Uh, he's, he doesn't rule and the rest of the, of the Orthodox community automatically falls in line. Um, so this is now sort of being litigated politically between Ukraine and Russia in the world of Orthodox opinion. And Russia is pushing other members of the Orthodox communion not to accept the the decision. Uh, Ukraine, of course, is pressing for them to accept the decision. Um, we should do a podcast episode on this. Yeah, well. <laughs> um, somebody should. Yeah. Uh, so – the other big news from Ukraine of the fall uh, is the crisis in the Sea of Azov. Now, this has actually been brewing for most of the year. Uh, you've had uh, the Sea of Azov is uh, joint territorial waters between Russia and Ukraine right around Crimea. Uh, and the two have been um, seizing each other's commercial ships since the spring. Uh, I think I believe Ukraine uh, acted first to seize a, a Russian-flagged uh, ship, but, uh, you know, that the Russians were quick to follow, and that's been that's just been continuing. Except that in late November, the Ukrainians decided to send some military vessels uh, through the area, including through the Kerch Strait, which um, is um, now under the new bridge that the right. Russians have built to Crimea, and it got rammed and shot at by the Russian Coast Guard. Yeah, and, and twenty-four sailors were kept were taken by Russia. Yeah, and I'm certainly not a, a lawyer. I have read various legal analyses of, of this incident, and I think the easiest way to put it is it's complicated. Basically, it goes like this. The two countries have an agreement that lets them move ships through this waterway. However, Russia claims Crimea. If Russia claims Crimea, then the Kerch well, Strait itself is Russian territorial waters. But – there are also Ukraine rules does about, not recognize yes, that there Russia are also claims Crimea. rules about notification. And right. Well, the Ukrainians claim they notified, even though they would say they didn't have to, but they claim they did. The Russians yes. claim they didn't. What uh, I find interesting is I find many things interesting about this, but there's a decent amount of evidence that, and it's not surprising, that both sides were prepared for something like this to happen. You've yeah. seen a buildup towards it over the course of months. Right. Well, and you said this: the, the Ukrainians had sent ships through the Kerch Strait before, um, you know, presumably testing the Russian response. Uh, the activity this time was a little bit different. The ships were armed. Um, it seems notification was given with much less lead time um, than had previously been the case. Uh, the Russians say they weren't, weren't given adequate notification. Um, but nevertheless, you know, when the ships were going through, the Russians had assets in position to respond and respond they did. And here we go. And Ukraine then declared martial law in yeah. the east, this little swath of uh, regions uh, along the border mainly. Yeah, but not just along the borders, in sort of eastern and southern and even sort of northern. Which Ukraine. a lot of people feel it was a political action because Ukraine is gearing up for elections of its own mm -hmm. in uh, in March, presidential elections. So I mean, it's, I mean, this is developing, right? So yeah. we're going to have to, we're going to watch and see what happens with this one. I, I think. Yeah. Uh, Let's just say that there are constituencies in both Moscow and Kiev who have something to gain from stoking this crisis. So it's going to be an exciting 2019 as well, I expect. Well, predicting is hard, especially the future, but I think that's a prediction we can pretty safely make.
that is it for our show today. Um, and, uh, you know, I just have to say, uh, Russian Roulette has been one of the most fun parts of my job as director of the Russia and Eurasia program here at CSIS. Uh, I've really, really enjoyed the conversations I've gotten to have with the guests. I have uh, loved uh, reading the mailbag questions and responding to them. I've enjoyed chatting with Jeff uh, about all the things that have happened in the region over the course of the last few years, and this podcast has given us an opportunity to sit down and have some of these conversations uh, in ways that sometimes the day-to-day work doesn't let you do. So I want to thank all of the listeners. I mean, I'm going to thank you again at the end of this spiel because we always do, but <laughs> I don't know, I'm, so, I'm so grateful to you for giving me the opportunity to do this. It's just been tremendous fun and uh, I'm going to miss it. And don't worry, we'll keep doing Russian roulette, uh, sadly, without Olya. Um, I, I said you can invite well, me back have, as a guest. Yeah, we'll have you back as a guest. Um, I think it'll be a little bit different not having the two of us here to you know argue but um i think we're going to have some more great episodes for you uh coming up and uh look forward to see what olia is going to do in her in her new job and whatever i do in the new job you should continue uh to listen to russian roulette and if you haven't already subscribe to it on itunes and leave a rating and a review if you have thoughts for directions jeff can take this in the future you can you can let him know if you're not an iTunes user, uh, check out the podcast and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. And yes, uh, mailbag questions, please keep sending them in. Um, I'm going to do a mailbag segment pretty soon uh, in the new year. Um, you can send them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian roulette in the subject line. You can follow the program on Twitter. Uh, it's at CSIS Russia. You can follow Jeff on Twitter. He's at Dr. J. Mankoff. And even though I won't be at CSIS, you can keep following me or start following me on Twitter. I'm at Olya Olakur. And finally, of course, big thank you to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening and Happy New Year. Happy New Year and thank you so much. It's been so much fun. 